Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. If you are an ambitious high school student or college student who is tired of just consuming abstractions and studying stuff that seems not relevant to your life, and you want to go out there and build something, create something, be part of a team, be part of the real working world, it's difficult. You have a lot of barriers, both legal and societal, that prevent you from joining. Uh, the real world until the traditional period of education has ended, but there's one notable exception to that, and that is the world of technology and the physical place called Silicon Valley. I didn't know where Silicon Valley was for a long time, even though I grew up in Northern California. It's the strip of land between San Francisco and San Jose, the peninsula, as they call it. Anyways, this is the place where young people can be judged. Purely on their talent, instead of by their age or by their level of formal credentials. If you can build something, if you can contribute to a team, contribute to a startup, then you are welcomed with open arms, more or less. Technology, by its very nature, requires self-directed learning because technology moves at a faster pace than formal education can keep up. If you're taking a course about a certain programming language in college, it's probably already outdated. Things change so rapidly that you have to be nimble and be able to learn on the fly. And so, everyone who wants to be part of the world of technology has to embrace self-directed learning to some significant degree. So, even if you don't have any interest in technology. There's a lot to be learned from the culture of Silicon Valley and the culture of startups regarding self-directed learning. My guest today is a 22-year-old who was very recently on the Ivy League path and abandoned it to go join this world of technology and entrepreneurship. And he's created a really cool organization called the Coding Space in New York City, which teaches coding skills to young people. Without further ado. Here's Steve. My guest today is Steve Kraus, a 22-year-old living in New York City. He's the co-founder of the Coding Space, and and a dropout from the University of Pennsylvania, the Ivy League school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Blake. Really glad to be on the show. Glad to have you. We are talking about your monumental decision just a few years ago to to leave one of the most prestigious universities. In the United States, and we're going to go really deep into it. So,、uh, are you prepared to go deep, Steve? I'm prepared. Oh, we are both prepared. Great. Well, let's start with some context.、Uh, tell me about your educational background, your schooling, your history, what it was like in the the K through twelve realm. Great. Yeah. So for me, I went to a private school in South Florida、um, from K to twelve. Um, but I, I kind of see my my、um, K to twelve education in two phases.、Um, the first phase, I、uh, felt, and my grades reflected me being a very stupid kid. I felt like a stupid kid, and it seemed like I was a stupid kid.、Um, I was like bad at math.、Um, I was bad at like all my classes. I got bad grades.、Um, so that's kind of where I started out.、Um, and then I went to this、um, really cool after school program in computer science. That called IMAX that changed my perspective on education and on and on myself.、Um, and then from there, I, I went from being one of the worst students in the the grade academically to one of the top students in the in the grade.、Uh, 
Um, what what grade was that when you did IMAX? Um, it, the shift happened between like seventh and eighth grade. Got it. Um, yeah, it was also helpful that it was after bar mitzvah year. That was a, that was a tough year for me. Uh, so, um, lots of parties and studying, but, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, so for me, that was like, it had a huge impact on me and that's where I got really big into computer science, which became my passion. Um, and also, uh, I got really good at math and science and, um, that set me up for, you know, for all the AP classes in high school to be, I went to a very competitive high school. Uh, and uh, as a private school, did it have any sort of specific theme? Was it just generally college prep kind of yeah, high achieving students? Yeah. The college preppiest. Um, it's just like, I think in my year, there were like 13 kids who went to Penn, uh, like, like three into Harvard, three into Yale. And it was a class of 200. So it's okay. just like a very, very prestigious it, school. It's a feeder for, for the top colleges. Yeah. And one thing that is interesting is people always talked about it being very competitive growing up. And I always disagreed with them. But it wasn't until like just a few years ago that I realized that was because I was the most competitive of everyone uh, <laughs> at the school. I was you know, such like the, the grade grabber kid uh, who always you know, wanted the perfect score and everything. So were you taking all the, the hardest classes, AP classes, honors classes, and getting A's in them? Yes. Got it. Did you ever get a B? Um, well, I got like, you know, B's and C's all throughout school until eighth grade. And then after that, um, I like kind of, a light went off and I realized that I could get A's. I didn't have to get B's and C's. I really thought I couldn't do better than that up until that point. And so at that point, I kind of steadily cl- climbed up from my C's to B's and B's to A minuses, A minuses to A's and A's to A pluses. And then once I got to A pluses, I kind of stayed there throughout high school. And you really credit that to the, the after school computer science program. That's, that was your turning point. Yeah. Just, you know, I have wonderful parents as well. I think they deserve credit um, where it is due, but that, th- that school really helped me reframe learning in my own mind, like the learning process and the way I perceive myself as a learner, the way I went about learning. Um, they made me like own it as opposed to the teacher owning it, um, which is kind of how I think it's taught in schools. Mm. I, I felt very passive in the process. And yeah, active. yeah. We're going to circle back to your your current thoughts about about pedagogy, since you yourself have have founded and and are running a an after school computer science or, or coding program. And so we'll come back to that. And let's let's mush forward towards the college years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got great grades. What did you feel like you were you were interested in? Was it was it one hundred percent computer science? You were positive. No, actually, it wasn't. It wasn't super obvious like that. Um, growing up, my parents always, uh, well, whenever I would come to them with like a profession that I'm going to do as kids do, I, I would say, like, you know, I want to be a teacher was the one I said most often. And my parents always, my mom especially would be like, no, no, you would never be happy being a teacher. Uh, you know, you get bored, you're going to be an entrepreneur. And so I like heard that constant, that like constant refrain growing up and just the way I looked like a white nerdy kid, um, with glasses, people always told me I was going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs or or Bill Gates. So, um, going to college, go, applying to Penn really was like, I felt like there was a pivot point cause you have to check a box. Do you want, do I, do I want to apply to the business school or to the engineering school? And it wasn't until I visited Penn and took some business classes and took some engineering classes that it became obvious. Like, Oh, these business classes are terrible and the engineering classes are amazing. I, I need to be an engineer. So you had parents that were actually pushing you into the realm of entrepreneurship, which is where you have eventually ended up. Uh, were either one of your parents entrepreneurs themselves? Yeah, my dad is an entrepreneur. Um, but I guess if you look closely, I won and they won. I'm, I'm an education entrepreneur. So 
uh, I am a teacher and an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that you did end up becoming a teacher of sorts. Yeah. Um, okay, so you uh, decided to go to Penn, um, and you went into the engineering, um, computer science, uh, which is under engineering. And what what were your expectations for this program? It sounds like you visited. It sounds like you did your your research, your due diligence. Uh, what what were you expecting college to be like? This the CS program specifically. Mm. You know, I really didn't think en- enough about it. I think for most kids, at least for me, especially in a preparatory school, it felt like my entire life was building up to this college thing. And, but there was just a cliff after high school graduation. Like I couldn't picture what college was going to be like. I just knew it was paradise. I knew it was amazing. I knew it was, <laughs> it was like worth all of the struggle. <laughs> That's uh, right. That, that is a truly religious viewpoint to have there. And I think many people hold that. Yeah, I, well, I think, well, yeah, I, I love comparing school to religion uh, because that's kind of how it works. You have the, the preachers, the teachers just constantly promising, oh, you'll need this in the afterlife. So, oh, if you do this work, you'll be rewarded in the afterlife. And usually that means college. Sometimes it means in the job market, but usually it means college. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't know what to picture. I just knew it would be bliss. It'd be amazing. Um, I'd like, you know, my, my mom always talks about how it was like the best four years of her life. She met all of her friends. And you learn so much and expand your brain. I didn't know what to expect. I just knew it was going to be amazing. So that's kind of where, how I went into it. Okay. So what was reality when rubber hit the road? Um, so I guess I got lucky because Penn is a very practically oriented school. And it's also a school with, that's very big and it's easy to get lost in, which was good for me because it allowed me to do what I, exactly what I wanted to do. I was you know, very competitive and... I had done some computer science before in this after-school program I mentioned. So I wanted to just take as much computer science as I could. I just, I just wanted to learn it all, all at once. So basically, I only took computer science classes, which you're not supposed to do, but they didn't ha- like, no one was checking, like, oh, are you taking mm-hmm. the freshman classes? So I just jumped in and took you know, all the classes they had in computer science. I took four computer, si- four computer science classes my first semester and then five the second semester. And, and that's how I went in. And it was amazing. I learned... Um, how the computer works at the level of the electron all the way up to the internet and everywhere in between. And I was, uh, it was amazing. So that's kind of how it started out in college. Really great experience first year. And they didn't have any sort of, of kind of catch mechanism to make sure that you're taking uh, liberal arts classes. Uh, was that just not part of the engineering department's requirements? Um, no. So I guess they don't have any catch mechanism to make sure you're doing it right. The catch mechanism comes at the end when, you know, before they give you the degree, they want to see that you've taken all the classes you need to, but there's no catch mechanism to make sure you've done it in the right order. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So you did 100% CS classes and your entire freshman year was learning how the computer worked. And uh, so, so where did this leave you going into sophomore year? So, Another thing happened in college uh, my, during my freshman year that was amazing. I got selected to be a part of this new organization called Dorm Room Fund, which came out of first round capital. It's a student-run venture capital firm that invests in student startups. So I got selected to be a part of that, and it, that was quite the experience. I learned how the venture industry works, how startups work. I got to talk to like all of the entrepreneurs on campus. It was really great. And so then the summer after freshman year, I went to intern at First Round Capital, which is the premier seed stage venture capital firm. They invested in Uber and Newton and Square and Blue Apron, among others. And so I got to work there as a technologist. And that 
experience working in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, which is like Mecca for the, for all of us tech geeks, just changed everything for me. I got to all the companies I was reading about in TechCrunch and Hacker News. They were right next to my office and I got to see engineers wearing their shirts all around everywhere. So that was just a huge eye-opening experience for me, getting to go and live in San Francisco. And probably the most dramatic part was it felt like everyone there, especially all the CEOs and founders I met through First Round, was hiring engineers. And they couldn't find enough engineers fast enough and no matter how much money they, they threw at them. And so it felt like everyone I met was trying to offer me a job for more money than I ever expected to make, you know, even a few years out of college. Mm, so that was, like, like six figures more than that. Oh yeah. More six figures or more every plus equity in the company. So, you know, potentially if it becomes the next Facebook, who knows, but uh, you know, at least that's what they promise or at least you want to believe. So it was, it was terrible, terribly exciting. And you got these offers as just an intern at, at this venture <laughs> capital firm, but, but you're saying it's, it was the top venture capital firm of its, yeah, so, uh, of its class. Yeah. So I guess first thing is I, t- I had taken all the computer science classes at, at Penn at that point. So I knew what I was doing. And at this venture firm, I was building real stuff. So I, it was kind of like I was, like, um, you know, not just a freshman, um, a little bit. But I think the most important part was this is an amazing venture capital firm. And the people there's word was, was taken very seriously throughout mm-hmm. the valley. And they, you know, in a very kind way, put that word behind me. And they, whenever they would, whenever a founder would come in to meet with a partner or whenever we'd go out and see a founder at a party or something, they would always say, Oh, meet my rock star engineer, Steve, or Oh, Steve's doing great work for us. You should talk. And that was it. Like you don't need a resume. You don't need a college degree. You don't need anything except someone at first round or another reputable firm in the Valley to vouch for you. And then you, you kind of haven't made it felt like at least. And these people were vouching for you because you were building some some projects. You, you were working on some uh, some projects for first round capital. You, you did enough. I mean, you were only there for a summer. I'm just I'm super curious about how you proved your skill and your worth to this brand new organization so quickly, such that they are giving you these these uh, highfalutin recommendations. Yeah. So so first round. Um, so I, I worked at Dorm Room Fund, which was this new organization. But then first round's been around for a little while, and that's where I worked this the summer. Um, and it, it's, it's a great question, um, why they vouched for me so quickly. I, um, I don't think I was, I was, I deserved it really. I think the, the answer is similar. If you look back to the dot com bubble of the 2000s, they were hiring like anyone who knew how to, you know, just type on a computer. It was just like a, a bubble where they just like couldn't hire anyone fast enough. So, like, fast forward to now, it's not the same. They don't want to hire just anyone, but they're pretty desperate to hire people in software. So if you like know what you're doing, if you can build something, if you know how to code, uh, it's not binary, like know how to code, don't know how to code, but if you, if you can act, build actual things, which I was doing for them, they would say, oh, Steve, can you build me a workflow when someone sends me an email, it sends an email back with this text, or can you scrape this website? They were giving me tasks and I was completing them. And, and, and just for the, all- for the nerds out there, what languages were you coding in? Mm, uh, at the time, I was a big Python guy, so it was all Python. Got it. Which is, which is probably a mistake, but at the time it was all new, so. <laughs> we all make mistakes, Steve. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that basically I was able to do what they told me to do with the computer, which is all, really all you need. Okay, so you're you're getting all these job offers. You're it's, it's this eye-opening experience 
for you. And then I assume the summer's ending and you're like, okay, it's time to go back for my sophomore year at Penn. Uh, where's your mind then? I was actually very excited to go back to Penn. Um, I had a few classes, liberal arts classes lined up that I was excited about. And in particular, I was excited to go back socially because it felt like there were only guys in Silicon Valley. And so I was excited to go back for girls, which was <laughs> yeah, very was, honest of you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's how I went into it. Okay. You're going back sophomore year. You're looking for girls. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then, uh, oh, what's it like? So what's it like? Um, so I took a few engineering classes. Um, there weren't many left, but I took what, what they had and they were good, but I, I had learned at that point that I didn't need to go to class. I could just read the textbook and do the exercises at home and submit the homework and come in for the tests. And so I was doing that and it just felt silly to be like doing this whole charade when I'm like not even going to school. I'm just doing their assignments. Um, and then I had teachers like docking me for participation points uh, because even though I was doing, you know, getting good scores and everything, like you have to show up. So that, that felt silly. Um, but I think really where it hit me was how much I disliked the liberal arts classes. It just really felt like school for school's sake. I was taking a, a writing seminar that, that I needed to graduate and they were teaching me how to write in this very academic, rigorous, cold way that I would never write for anything in, in, in the real world. And I would get into these long philosophical debates with my teacher and she would say, and I was like, what? Like I have my own style of writing that people love that like works well in emails and blog posts. Like I want to write in that style. She's like, no, you have to write in this style because you know, you need it for other classes in college. You need it for your graduate degree, you know, for grad school. If you ever choose to do that, if you're ever going to write in a literary, like a critical literary journal, you need it for that. She's like, no, like you don't get it. Like this is so not what I need. People like I already have. So that's when I started thinking about how I already have skills that people would pay me for. I don't need to like take this. I don't need to put up with schools box that they want to put me in. So that's, that's kind of where I started getting discontented. So um, as yeah. somebody who's been competitive and sounds like fairly uh, precocious in the sense of like, you're able to, to kick school's ass when you want to, you're able to get good grades. Um, did you, did you feel like you just have no need for the liberal arts? Did you feel like because yeah. you can teach yourself computer science, you can teach yourself engineering, um, you know, the classes were largely irrelevant and there's a mark, a very clear market. People were already offering you jobs at, at age, I assume you were 18 or 19. Um, do you just feel like that there's no need for you to expose yourself to the rest of the, the liberal arts canon? Ah, ooh, yes. I see your question. So I think where I, my, my stance on this was very clear. I think I went to a really great high school. Like I had an uncle who went to Andover who said that Andover was amazing, but it was a problem because when he went to Yale, it was a letdown because Andover <laughs> was so good. And, I, and I, I always laughed at that when he told me it, like growing up. But I think that's what happened with me and Penn because I went to this wonderful high school in South Florida that had seminars and we had discussions. They taught me how to read. They taught me how to write, how to think critically, ask questions of the text. And by the time I got to college, in my computer science classes and my liberal arts classes, it was like, I'm an intellectual. I know how to do these things that you're trying to teach me. You're just holding me back from doing them myself. The, um, the year I left school, the, the, you know, that, the, the year after I left school, like the next 365 days, I read 50 books. And in, and in college, I was reading, I don't know, maybe 10 books a semester, but I was like skimming them and just doing it for, like to pass the test. But like, I, I want to read liberal arts. I, I love that stuff. I think it's, it's really wonderful, fiction, nonfiction. Uh, but I, I could just do it better myself. I already had those skills, I think. 
Okay, so you sound fairly indebted to your your extremely awesome high school experience, which you feel like gave you a good level of exposure to all the different academic areas that are out there. Um, good base in reading, writing, um, maybe speaking also. Um, it pretty much you, you got the liberal arts experience ahead of time. Is that how yes. you explained it to yourself? D- that's how it felt. I don't know. Yeah, it felt like I could learn anything they wanted me to learn from the book and just and engaging with peers of my own. I didn't need school to facilitate reading books for me. Cool. Um, okay, so let's move on to your decision to, to drop out. When it, you're feeling this frustration, you're feeling like you don't need to go to class, you're feeling like you don't want to take the liberal arts classes. What, I mean, to make that decision must be huge to actually go from to contemplating it to, to taking the action. Like, explain that process. Yeah. So I think, so for some context, I touched on this briefly. Ever since I was in high school, people have been, have been kind of hinting that I would drop out. I remember this, this time I was on the bus and this girl said, Stevie, I think you're going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And I said, who's Mark Zuckerberg? And she's like, like she hit her head with her forehead. She hit her hand, her forehead with her hand. And she's like, haven't you heard of Facebook? Um, so ever, so I, people have always been hinting that that was something that I was going to do. But I never seriously thought about it because college was always going to be this magical time of my life. Um, so much so that, in fact, that I wrote a blog post the, the summer that I was out in California after freshman year. I wrote a blog post about how dropping out of college is really short-sighted and dumb and I'm never going to do it. So that, that's how much I really didn't think I was going to leave school. Wow. And that was, that was just a number of months before you actually did leave school. Yes, exactly. So interesting. Okay, continue. Yeah, so I was really against it, and I thought it was really dumb. Um, Mostly, I was just re-articulating arguments for my parents and other people. Everyone says that school's the right thing to do, so it it was easy for me to say that as well. Um, So what the real turning point in my mind was I was halfway through sophomore year, and then I went with a bunch of Penn friends out to Silicon Valley to visit a bunch of tech companies and just hang out in the Valley just be fanboys and girls in the Valley. And I met this girl on Stanford's campus and she had something going on with her family. She basically, she said that she she was going to Harvard at the time and she said, but I, I had family issues. So I had to take a year off school and now I'm working at a tech company for the year. And then I'm gonna go back to school next year. And instinctively, my first reaction was, Oh, like, why can't, like my mom got cancer. Like, why can't my family have some issues so I can take off time <laughs> from school? Terrible. <laughs> and then my second thought was, that's terrible. You're the worst. <laughs> why are you pushing something bad on your family? Why don't you just do what you want to do and leave school? So that was like the first like realization that I had. Like, wow, I want to leave school so badly that I'm wishing like cancer on my family members. Like, I, I really should go. <laughs> I should really think about this. <laughs> yes, you should. Okay. Yeah. So, so th- but that was just a start. I think it took me two more months to come to the decision. I like talked to, I was calling up entrepreneurs. I was calling up friends, family, mentors. I was calling up anyone I could think of. Unfortunately, I didn't have your books, Blake, because that would have been very helpful. I didn't think there were books on this topic. It just seemed so, it it felt like I was reinventing the wheel here. No, not like I was like charting my own course. It felt like no one dropped out. It felt like I was really alone and that there were no resources for this. Um, I think the four hour work week was like the most related book I could find on this topic. I don't know. I, I just, but even that book does not really address education. It kind of no, assumes you've graduated from college. Yeah, not at all. So I, was, I really felt alone. And I was trying to like make sense of it on my own through mentors and talking to parents and, and things like that. Um, 
eventually I had this wonderful mentor at Penn, Adam Grant, who's written a few wonderful books. He, so I, 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 was, I wasn't even taking his class, but I was waiting for his office hours because I'd heard he's a, he's a great mentor. So I just snuck in and, and laid out my problem to him in like three minutes. And his advice was, Steve, just given the fact that you've come into my office to tell me about how you want to drop out, but here are the cons and benefits here. And here's who all the people you've talked to. Just the fact that you're here says to me that you've come far enough. Leaving school is so unbelievably hard. The fact that you're even here asking about this says you've come far enough. You really should leave because if you don't, you'll always be wondering what if, and you'll constantly be coming back to this and it'll be a constant theme throughout college and it'll be this nagging thing. Just go, take some time off, try and make your, make a good life for yourself. And if it doesn't work, come right back. You have 10 years to come back to Penn because Penn is weird like that. So his advice was, the way he wanted me to structure it was kind of like a gap year. Like, go do a little experiment, and if you love it, stay, and if you don't, come back. And that, that first adult validating my decision and my thought process was transformative. That was, after that, I was basically at the door. Wow. So the, the Penn professor actually said, it sounds like you should do this. Yeah. And, you know, something that's not really discussed in the, the Zuckerberg and Gates stories about dropping out of college is that at Harvard, you can drop out and you can come back. I don't know if it's any time, but it sounds like it's certainly, you know, at least like what Penn does with you know, 10 years. Um, it's like instant re-enrollment is just, it's right there waiting for you. And so it's not this, you know, all or nothing decision where you have to like reapply as a, as a new student if you want to come back. And that's something, I think that's a fantastic feature of those schools and that more schools should do. Because it, yeah. it, re- it reduces that, that fear factor. And you can, then you are at liberty to then think about taking a year off as something more like a gap year where you can return. Um, so that's fantastic that you got to benefit from that. Yeah, totally. I, I think most schools have it. Um, I, but I think the, the problem isn't that you can come back. I think it's usually, I could be wrong, but to me, it's the mental block, for me at least, was it felt like I was on this, in, this train. It felt very real to me, but now I see that it was just like invisible the whole time. Ever since pre-K, I was like moving with the same class of people. I was like class of 2016. And it just, it felt impossible to not be a part of class of 2016, to like get off and like be behind all of my peers. Like I worked so hard to get ahead of all my peers. Like I spent all this time taking computer science. Like I was ahead of everybody to like leave school and then come back behind them. It, that was, I think, what really took me the longest time to get over. Yeah, to, to feel like you're stepping off of the conveyor belt and if you get back on, then uh, time and opportunity have, have passed you. Yeah, like the thought that I would I'd be in the same grade as my brother who's, who's now ahead of me in school if I returned, like that was like terrifying. <laughs> uh, our natural social instinct to uh, compete and to remain with the cohort that we are assigned into. Um, okay, how did the discussions with your parents go? Uh, it sounds to me like your parents probably wanted you to stay in college. Yeah. So people ask me, usually that's the biggest, the first thing I hear when someone says, oh, I want to leave school and I encourage them to, the immediate thing they say in response is, oh no, my parents would never go for that. I can't even bring that up with my parents. It would be a catastrophe. And and these are legally adults. These are people ages 18 and up, right? This is people, yeah, 18 and up for sure. And um, oftentimes the people who, who really say that the most fiercely is Asian students, which makes sense based on the stereotypes of Asian parents that I know. Um, I, I really hear that fiercely, but all parents for sure. Um, and the advice I give, which I don't know if anyone's really taken, so I don't know if it's good advice. It worked for <laughs> me though, was what seemed to work well for me was 
the first thing I did was keep my parents involved in the conversation. So and make them feel heard. So I like use them as a sounding board, even when they like were yelling at me not to leave school. I was like, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. Let me think about it. I, it. I think to them, it felt like they were being heard and it wasn't like I was being totally rebellious. I was being like methodical about it. I was taking their advice. I was asking other people. So it was more of a conversation than like, surprise, I'm leaving. So I think that was a good first step. Um, and then another thing that I think is very important is that parents want the best for you. And, or at least that's what they say. And, and it's definitely true. And, I think I think that's generally true. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely it's definitely true. Um, sometimes kids like you know are skeptical of it. They're like, "Oh, you want the best for me? Like ten years from now, you want the best for me long term, not the best for me now." Some you know there are like debates on like parents don't want the best for me; they want like the average, the, like the average for me because parents are like more risk averse than you are. But put that aside, parents want the best for you. So I think there are some keywords that you can use to like trigger that in parents. Um, for me, the keywords that my mom I was talking to my mom about this this morning. She said when I when I told her that I was unhappy and that I was lonely. She was like, Oh wow. Like my son is unhappy. Like that, like that's a catastrophe. Like where do you think you could be happy? Son? Like then she was willing to really consider other options because I was unhappy. And who are these mentors, these other adult figures who you were consulting uh, and and what kind of advice were they giving you? Mm. So I was talking to my parents uncles and aunts, different professors. Some So there was um, in Silicon Valley, to give you another taste of Silicon Valley, I emailed someone out of the blue that I met at a party once. Um, hey, so he also dropped out of school to go start a company. So I messaged him, hey, I'm thinking about leaving school. Could you spare some time to talk for me? Here's my number. And he called me immediately, like five minutes from then, which was hilarious for me because he's like a famous guy at the time. Or it's, it seemed like he was famous to me. Um, so the way the Valley works is if, if an engineer is thinking about leaving school and getting a job, they, you know, they call you right away. So he, his advice was, <laughs> was, you know, leave and come work for me. So that, that's the kind of advice I was getting from, from him and the, and the tech industry was like, come and leave. Every adult I talked to, every single one except for Adam Grant said it was a bad idea. Every single adult. Wow. And, yeah. and, and what were their, their reasons? Um, I got a lot of, you never knows. So you never know if you want to get an MBA one day. You never know if you want to be a doctor one day. You never know if a job requires you to have an MBA one day or uh, uh, sorry, uh, an undergraduate degree one day. Um, so like, like safety net arguments, safety net arguments. Exactly. They're saying all these jobs, uh, either formally require a bachelor's degree or, or effectively, Everyone you'll, you are competing with will have a bachelor's degree and, and employers highly value that. And so you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot by putting all your eggs in this, this programming, this tech basket. Is, is yeah, that what they were saying? That's totally what they were saying. And they do have a, a point. They definitely have a point. I, after, after I left the, the job, I eventually, at some point after, I'm skipping ahead in the story here, but at some point I tried to get a job as a public school teacher and I couldn't get anyone to call me back because they looked. One, they took one look at no degree, and and that was it. Eventually, I, you know, I, I figured it out. But uh, and I'm sure I could have if I really made an effort. But it's very discouraging that people write you off um, on first glance, not having a degree. So they, they did have a point. I don't think it was worth four years of school and all the money that all the money and time it requires. But but there is a point there. They they do have some valid arguments. Yeah, it's. I mean, this is all uh, an argument about opportunity costs. And, you know, is this investment of four years where you are not feeling 
engaged, where you are feeling like you could be doing it better yourself, is, is slogging through that in these sort of prime years of your life worth that, that maybe I'm going to want to do something else that absolutely requires a degree in the future? Uh, nobody can answer that for you. And, and I wonder if it sounds like all the adult mentors and friends that you had in your life gave you almost the, the exact same response. I, I wonder if, um, you know, how many other people are in your your situation, something similar to, to what you were, you know, the, the, the thought process you were going through. And they ask adults and, and pretty much they universally get this conservative response, this, this play it safe. Um, wh- why didn't you listen to them? I did. I think I did. Um, there, one of my dad's friends, my dad uh, had a friend that he knew I looked up to. And so he called him and asked him to talk to me. And he kind of yelled at me for, you know, five or 10 minutes and like, you got to stay in school and here's why. And he like, didn't let me talk. And after that, I was like, okay, I'm staying, I'm staying in school. Uh, but then I followed up with Adam Grant anyways. And he, he like opened the door again. So it really is a back and forth thing. I didn't, I didn't, it was a kind of a messy process where some of adults convinced me, some convinced me into staying in school, some convinced me to stay out. Um, uh, so yeah, so I think it's a messy process. I think the thing that I had that that's relatively unique is that I had these job offers, these so um, like attractive job offers on the table. That that's very unique. So other other kids might have adults telling them, "Oh, you should stay in school. You can never get a job," and they could actually be scared that they'll never get a job, like any job. And like here I was being offered six figure jobs, like you know, at the snap of fingers. Like you know, that kind of sh- like flew in the faces of every one of these arguments because like it's like no, I actually have it right now, and I'm getting more money than you're paid or whatever it was. So that that's I had that like you know kind of ace in the hole. Yeah, argument. let's go off on a little tangent on this, and then we'll come back to the, the the day that you decided to drop out. But what is your take on? I mean, what you're explaining is is sort of represented to me by Peter Thiel and the Thiel Fellowship. Mm. And for those not familiar, Peter Thiel. Searches for promising young college-age people who have entrepreneurial visions and will pay them $100,000 over the course of two years to stop going to college for those two years and work on their startup. And he offers guidance and mentorship and um, and a, a Silicon Valley network. I mean, that's pretty much accurate, right, Steve? Totally. Yeah. So do you – you're still – you're 22. You're, you're still kind of in the thick of this process. You're at the age when your peers are, might have just recently graduated and, uh, but do you see this sort of siren call of a high paying job to a very young person? Do you see any sort of, of pernicious effects from that? Do you, you know, mm. uh, what, how can this lead people astray? Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I see what you're, what you're getting at. Um, I, the, Let's see. The part of this that I think could be wrong or bad is when you take engineering and you see the jobs people get and you see how highly, how highly paid they get and how, how many jobs there are, how hungry employers are to have them. It's easy to turn that into a jobs training program for, yes. for all kids and especially for kids in like lower socioeconomic backgrounds or of less privilege. And I've been, and you've been seeing that, or I've been seeing that um, popping up all over the country, especially in New York and San Francisco, where I've been living. All these organizations. Uh, sometimes we have meetups where all the organizations that teach computer science in the city get together, and it's like hundreds of people, or, or you know, dozens of different organizations. 
And the job skills thing, I have a real struggle. I have a real problem with, a real struggle with when it's done wrong. Um, There's like a real fine line between a jobs program that's done right and and one that's done wrong. I, I think the core base of skills needs to be there before you do jobs job training. You're saying a sort of, a sort of like general education, a liberal arts education before you, you do the highly specialized technical skills? Yes. It, but I mean that in like the broadest sense. So I don't mean that you need to go to a four-year college and get a liberal arts degree before you go get your engineering master's degree. I mean that you have to have a, com- a general command over the English language. You have to know how to communicate. You know how to think. You know how to, basic, you know how to do basic things before doing job training. I, I think if, if we go into the weeds a little bit and, ex, and, and I explain what bad job training looks like to me, I think that'll make it more clear. Usually when I think of bad job training, especially in the context of coding, it's people drilling students on syntax and on using the technologies of the day. So today that might be Ruby on Rails. Ten years ago it might have been Java. And the problem with that is that you drilled them to memorize very specific commands and very specific technologies. And then they're only useful in that like very specific context that you've built them for. You, you basically turn, you're trying to map this really creative and complex role of a software engineer to an assembly line worker and, and you're training them like they're an assembly line worker. And that just doesn't, doesn't work. You can't train a software engineer like they're an assembly line worker. There's so many other ancillary skills that you need to know um, in order to be this creative software engineer and get paid the six figures. So I think that's the problem. Got it. So you're not against this idea of re- recruiting young people to go work in coding at, at age, you know, 18, 19, 20. Um, but you feel like the ones who are going to be most successful in that in the long term are the ones who already have this sort of general um, reading, writing, speaking, uh, you know, generally liberal arts base. So that, I mean, I mean that's kind of a fallback argument too, right? In, in the same way that these, yes. these adults in your life were making this fallback argument. You're saying, you know, if you, you know, if we took an 11-year-old and started teaching them the, the current hottest, you know, programming language of the day with the hopes that when they turn 18, they're going to be hired immediately. You're saying that's short-sighted. Um, um, well, it depends how you teach it. If you teach it in the right way so that they're like actually figuring out how programming works, it could be all right. But if you're teaching it to them in, in a way that's uh, very drill, like, like practice drills, wrote, exactly. If you yeah. teach it very, if you're like memorizing coding commands the way we ask students to memorize trig functions or the states and capitals, that's very short-sighted because tomorrow they're going to have to memorize a whole new list of those things and it's going to be useless. Mm. Yeah, no meta-learning skills are gained Along the way. No, exactly. So yeah. the meta learning skills need to be present in order for it to work. Uh, in order for in order to teach coding, you can't teach coding first. All right. Well, let's let's get back out of the weeds. But I, I just want to say, Steve, it sounds like you've thought a lot about how to teach coding. You should consider opening a programming <laughs> that helps kids learn how to code, but not in a rote way. Just yeah. just throwing that out there. Okay. Oh, what, what a great idea. Yeah. Great. Don't say I never did anything for you. <laughs> um, okay. So. What day did you decide to, to quit college? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know if I can't think of a, a day that I made the decision. Um, I think I just got after Adam Grant, I got more and more sure as time went on. And then um, there, there's a day I headed to my forms, but before I get to that, um, I think, so after I talked to Adam Grant, 
maybe one or two other professors. And I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do it. My dad had this wonderful prompt back to me, which was, okay, you've been talking about how you're leaving school and you're going to go off to engineering and get all these wonderful job opportunities. And it's going to be amazing. But let's talk concrete here. Let's get some actual offers on the table from actual companies that you actually want to work at and compare them with each other and with school and see what's your best option. And we'll pick that. And it, very commonsensical. So I called back all the people who wanted to hire me, said they wanted to hire me and interviewed with them, you know, went out to New York City, interviewed with them, got on the phone with people in California, interviewed with them. And I got three offers on the table that I really liked and were excited about. And then I picked the one I wanted and accepted it. So that, so I guess when I accepted that job, that was kind of when I decided to leave school. And then I actually waited to, to, to turn my papers until the day my brother got accepted to Penn because I didn't want to interfere with his chances of getting into to Penn because my mom um, transferred away from Tufts in her her sophomore year, and then her younger brother didn't get into Tufts. So we're because very they have priority to family members? Well, yeah, so I think we could be wrong, but we think that Tufts like, took it out of my, my mom's younger brother because she left. Um, <laughs> something like that. I realize um, this kind of politics happened. Um, okay, so, you, so you, I, you kindly thought about your brother. So I waited until he left to hand my papers. But I think the, the real day I decided to leave school was when I had a job offer in my hand that I was really excited to accept. That was when I decided to leave. Okay, so this was not a situation where you were throwing yourself out into this this realm of total uncertainty or or, or lack of safety or security. Like you you had the next step locked in before you quit college. Yes, one hundred percent. And I locked it in as an internship, actually, a six month internship that I was going to go back to college afterwards oh, with nice. a potential to, to turn into a. Full, they wanted to offer me a full time job right away, and I was like, no, 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 pay me less. Structure as an internship. And if I like it, you like me, then we'll do a full-time job after. So, okay. so you, were, you were still thinking about this as a gap year or a gap semester um, yep. type opportunity. So you okay. were not fully on board with quit college, never going back. I was pretty on board with it, but that was an easy way for me to conceptualize it and a very easy way for my parents and ah, teachers and everyone else to conceptualize it. Yes. Okay. So that helped you sell it to other people and get their support, their moral support. Yes. Uh, very interesting. Okay, so that was halfway through your sophomore year, and so you structured the second half of your sophomore year to be the six-month internship. Um, was it out in San Francisco? It was actually at a, San Francisco, yes. There was a, a town a, a little bit south, uh, Santa Cruz. That's where the company was located. Oh, yeah. cool place. Um, okay, and how did that go? It was wonderful. So the company is called Looker, and it was a wonderful place to be. When, so when I was working at First Round, the, a lot of the work I did had to do with databases, and Looker has a software that makes it really easy to work with databases. So I was using the Looker software at first round and they, they were like, they just formed, they were a year old. And I was like, help. I was like pushing the product forward. I was like, oh, my boss is at first round, I need this feature. Can you add this feature to Looker? And they're like, okay, sure. And so at the end of the summer, they're like, you know, you're one of our best customers. You know, we'd love to hire you. And I was like, I'm just a kid. I'm going back to school, but like maybe in three years. And they're like, oh, okay, well, never mind. Um, but then I called them a few months later. I was like, how about that job? And they said, yep, still here. Um, so I ended up at Looker. When I joined, I was the 30th person of the company. I was the eighth engineer. When I left a year later, they had 100 people. So that the, the year I stayed was this rocket ship of a year where we raised, you know, they, where they raised $10 million and hired like a bajillion people. And all of a sudden, I became a senior person of the company in just a few months. And how old were you at this a point? A really fun experience. I was 19 when I started and 20 for most of it. Okay, so you, you were really living this Silicon Valley dream. Like, it, it worked for you. 
Yes, it, it was. Yeah, it was all idyllic. Well, I guess the one thing that didn't conform to my expectations of the dream was I joined a company that was run by real old pros that like, you know, they worked at Netscape. They've been in the Silicon Valley industry for decades and they started companies over and over and over again. So what I was expecting was like 80 hour weeks and really working hard. And like, I expected to like really like, like almost a rite of passage. I like wanted to burn the candle at both ends and, and make, make stuff. Um, but they knew what they were doing. And it, it looked, they made it look easy. Like everyone worked like 30 or 40 hours a week and built great stuff. And every quarter we just, or every month even, we just blew past our sales goals. And it was just, it, they just made it look easy. And we just like kept doubling the company and, and growing sales and the business. It was, yeah, it was, it was really fun to get to see how companies run correctly. And one thing that, that I caution other people considering joining startups about is that which startup you join is a very big deal because a lot of people will join. So anyone can start a startup. So it's very easy to join a startup run by someone who doesn't know what they're doing at all and then get a bad taste in your mouth for the whole startup industry or even just have like a bad few years. So I think it's very important to pick the startup uh, correctly. And so I got very lucky in that respect. I worked at a venture capital firm. I worked with their software. I knew them inside and out. So um, it was easy for me to scope out the startup that was right for me. So that, was, that worked out really well. At the end of those six months, did you ever seriously consider going back to Penn? So a month in, I, I was thrilled with the job and my life and my parents could just hear my voice, how happy I was. And I, things were going well at Looker. So I just said, you know, make, make me the offer. So a month in, I had to make me a full-time offer and I accepted it right away. So that was that. Was that. Um, and, I, and I never expected to go back to Penn after that. I want to get into some discussion about the, the issues and, and questions surrounding the, the, the leave school movement, especially, uh, you know, leave college to go into the tech industry. But before we do that, just give us a, a quick snapshot of your life since taking that first job in Silicon Valley and up through what you're doing right now. Sure. So I spent a year at Looker and it was amazing and I learned so much. And then at the end of the year, I started to ask some like deeper questions about what is the meaning of my life? What should I do with it? Um, what am I here for? And, and it, it just didn't, it didn't feel like I was making good on meaningful, a meaningful existence at Booker. I was making a lot of money and I was doing good work and I was providing value for Looker's customers. It just didn't feel like it was a meaningful existence in the way I wanted to be living. So I left and decided I was going to take a few months to figure out what to do next with my life. And I went home to Florida. I don't, I don't know if you want me to go this far into detail. No, no, this is good. Keep going. All right. So I went home to Florida and spent a month at my parents' house and just watching TV, waking up late, journaling a little bit, just relaxing. And two weeks into that month, my parents sit me down. They're like a little rattled and they're they, they like really give me a talking to like, what are you doing with your life? We're nervous about you. Are you depressed? Like you should go back to school. Why aren't you going back to school? Like it was really intense and really emotional for them. And for me, mostly just to see them so emotional. I was very confident. I was not going back to school and that was not what I wanted to do, but you know, it was just to see them. So riled up was really uh, hard for me. So I knew I shouldn't be around that. So I, um, called up uh, a friend, Jonathan Lung, who's been a, a really close friend and an advisor of mine. And he advised me to, um, he said, you know, I happen to be, 
a friends of mine are running this like meetup in New York. They're, they're getting together for a week and just hanging out. You should go up there and hang out with them. So I did that and I had a great time with them and decided after that to move to New York and live in New York and hang out with them and just freelance and just be away from my parents in New York city and like be with, be with peers and do software freelance work and support myself because I, I luckily have a skill that's incredibly valuable. And so I did that. I supported myself to doing freelance software for a few months in New York city. Um, so that's kind of where the story took me next. And then I, something very important happened. One of my friends that I met at the, at this retreat that I went to in New York was really pushing me to do this self-help thing, this self-help course called Landmark that really changed my perspective on life and, and kind of helped me think through the meaning questions that I was dealing with when I left Looker. And it became very clear to me that the things that are meaningful to me in life are helping people. And the most helpful thing or the most transformative thing that has ever helped me was this computer science education I had done as a kid. So literally that week after I did Landmark, I decided that I was going to start a business and I called up my my best friend Eli and said, Hey, you know, we've always talked about starting a business. Let's do it like right now. Um, this is happening. Maybe we'll move to California. Maybe we'll stay in New York. I start, like, I just, like, I started putting my life together in a big way. And that was, what's that? About, about a year ago in February. So a year ago, a year and six months ago or so from right now. And so we started a company that eventually became the coding space, which uh, we've been running for about a year in New York City to teach children to code. Uh, we started with you know zero students and nothing about a year ago, and uh, we hope by the end of the fall to be be teaching 300 students a week. So it's been kind of a fun ride. We've we've grown a lot. We've uh, taught a lot of students. We've we've learned a lot about teaching and coding and running a business. Um, so that's kind of where I've been in the past year. And has it been fulfilling your your meaning desire that wasn't there for your uh, you know your first job in Silicon Valley? entirely yeah it's definitely fulfilled my meaning it's it's so yeah it's so clear i'm i'm doing exactly what i want to be doing um i think that that's probably the real so people talk about it there are a few reasons to be an entrepreneur um like one is you know i don't like having a boss there are a few reasons i think the reason that's most relevant for me is i want to do something that's meaningful to me And, and the job of an entrepreneur i think is deciding like what needs to be done like anyone who works under an entrepreneur like under a ceo or or boss type, like more or less takes orders a little bit. Like, you know, he, you know, we need to rate, you know, we need more sales. We need more features. But I think like someone who starts a business gets to decide what the business does, like how this business gets to impact the world. And so that's why that this role has been great for me because I get to say, here's this, here's what I want to do for children. Here's what I want to do for the world. And I get to do that. Great. Let's circle back to your experience dropping out of college and, and sounding like it, it totally succeeded. And let's talk about the, the bigger notion of other people doing this. So I'll just start with the hard question. Like, do you think other people can do what you did? <laughs> um, great question. So I guess specifically, do I think that other kids can leave college and, you know, be successful or, or specifically go do well in tech and start their own company? Let's start with just talking about tech and then we'll, we'll go broader from there. Yeah. So definitely kids can, can do what I do. Um, there's the whole Teal Fellowship community who I was, I was on the periphery of, of in, um, in San Francisco. I actually wrote that article I wrote about, I'm never leaving school, was kind of aimed at the Teal Fellow community. So I'm not their most popular um, <laughs> person, but I, but they're aware of you. They know your name then they know me. Um, 
I, I eventually became close with a few of them. Um, so, so there are plenty of people who leave school and tech and become successful. A lot of them leave and start companies and then those companies fail and they get hired. A lot of them go right into jobs and then start companies after and those companies succeed or fail. There's like a lot of different options. But it seems like kids in technology have a lot more autonomy than kids in other industries or kids without those skills. So it seems like it's very doable. I think what I, part of what I had that uh, was, was very lucky is I picked the right parents, I think. Uh, so my parents had the means to support me at, at, in a safety net kind of way if anything bad happened. So I really it, really, it really felt like there was no downside to leaving because I had tech to catch me and then I had college to catch me and then I had my parents to catch me. So like there was, there was like, I was not going to end up on the streets homeless at all. I, I did have a friend who that, that happened to, he did end up on the, on the streets homeless for a little while, but he figured it out eventually. But, but for me, that was never an issue. So I was lucky. And in your general uh, knowledge of other people who have attempted this path of dropping out of college to go into tech, uh, how many of them, what percentage would you guesstimate do end up in a, you know, a good job or starting to start up and what percentage of them end up going back to college or, or just having a lot of trouble and floundering? What, what's the success rate for this in your, t- you know, totally anecdotal opinion? Ooh, good questions. So I think, so first of all, there aren't many who leave Penn. I, so I know in Silicon Valley, I met other, a bunch of other kids who dropped out because you know, I wanted to hang out with other kids that were 20 and the only other kids who were 20 hanging out doing tech stuff were dropouts. So they were coming from all different schools. Um, so, I have a, so most, like a lot of my friends are dropouts, which is a very skewed view of the population. It, it seems like, ooh, it, maybe half of them stay out of school and then half of them go back for whatever reason. I would never, I wouldn't say that any of them flounder. I would say that probably what it is actually of the kids that I, that I know who go back, they go back there and they're very directed. They're, like they, they've spent a few years out in tech in the real world. And then they come back to college like, Oh, like here's like, I didn't know how accounting works. And now I want to learn accounting. Like they come back in with a purpose, like a drive. They're like, they, they're like the most well-adjusted students at school is what I, mm. what I've seen. They're like they know what they, they've taken the gap here. They know what they want from school and they go back and get it. Mm-hmm. And then they leave. So uh, all the things that people say are good about gap years. Uh, yeah. So the worst case scenario, if you fail in tech or dropping out, you've just had a wonderful gap year. Now you know what school, what you want out of school. Yeah. Okay. By definition, otherwise you wouldn't go back, I guess is, is part of it. Yeah. Have you seen any total crash and burns? Uh, like people who, who seemingly wreck their lives by, by leaving formal uh, higher education? Uh, <laughs> I imagine, so, um, so first of all, you should probably interview a, my friend. He's really an acquaintance, but I, I should interview, introduce him to you because he's kind of flies in the same circles as me, but he ended up homeless at, at one point in his life. So he has kind of an interesting story. That you, that's probably a whole separate thing. Um, but besides that, no. Like any, if, you go to, if, you, if you're good enough to get into Harvard or Princeton or Yale or any of these, like the top schools, and then you leave, you, like you're pretty resourceful. You're not you're not going to end up in like on the streets usually. I think um, a lot of times there's not much of a distinction between the different kinds of dropouts, and I, I think there kind of is. Not to be elitist about it, but there's like the dropouts, like me and other tech people who are dropping out of, of school because they're like quote unquote too good for school or like they want to do their own thing and school's holding them back for whatever reason. And then there are people who are dropping out of school because they can't handle school 
um, for financial reasons or academic reasons or whatever it is, or time reasons. There, there are plenty of reasons. So like you can drop out because school's too hard or because school's too easy. And so for the people who school's too easy for, it's, it's hard to imagine someone ending up in a bad place because of that. Mm. You know, you might not be able to become a doctor, but there are plenty of jobs that you'd be qualified for um, that like don't require a degree. You know, plenty, plenty of jobs that are super high paying. But if you drop out of school because you can't handle school, that doesn't bode well for your options. So There's a similar distinction in the unschooling world, and people have attempted to use the word, the, the term rise out instead of mm. drop out to, to make that distinction. Um, mm-hmm. it's, and, and that's my, in my experience working with unschoolers, uh, a lot of them can handle the, the challenge of school if they are, if they so desire. Um, but it's, you know, there's not a good connection there. There's no meaning. They're not engaged. They're bored. The social scene is bad, but academically they could, they could handle it if they wanted to. And so they're, they're more opting out instead of being kicked out in that, in that dropout sense of just not being able to handle the system. Um, so coming back to what you said about this, the type of people who are dropping out and succeeding, it sounds like everyone is coming from a relatively privileged background and has and has these multiple safety nets in the form of, well, if it doesn't work, I can go back to this college. If it doesn't work, then I know that my parents have got my back. Um, you know, I can always go back and stay with them. Um, and I know that you have some some thoughts uh, about the, the the privilege aspect of of dropping out from from college. So. Uh, let, let's talk about that. Where, where does your mind go with when I say the word privilege? So I guess I'm thinking to my friend, Chris Gray, who um, is an entrepreneur. And he was, he said, he, like, this was, it was very, it was a big deal for me when he told me about how he was analyzing how so many of the entrepreneurs are white people of privilege. Um, and like to point it out, he's like, um, Evan Spielfogel of Snapchat, who was you know very busy at the time, he's like he has a trust fund. Like he's like I don't have that kind of resources. I mean, I have nothing. I grew up in like a, a town with no resources. And my parents always rooting against me. Like, and he, so I guess all what I'm trying to say is that it's just so much harder and so much rarer for someone without all this privilege to be able to leave school successfully, as opposed to someone with a trust fund. Um, or someone like Zuckerberg or Gates or like upper middle class. So the, I think it's just, it's very important. Um, I, so, and it's, it's easy for me to forget that. So I eventually made a, a flow chart for myself. Um, so if anyone ever asked me like, should I drop out of college? I was able to like follow the flow chart and answer for them if it made sense or not. And it, it, and it depends if, if you're, if you're a first generation, if your parents haven't gone to college, it's like for networking reasons, it's definitely more, more important to go to college. If, um, if you need a degree for your career, it's definitely more important. If you're international and you like want, uh, to get a better shot at getting a visa, it's definitely more important. So like there are different characteristics of people that make it much more important to get a degree that I didn't have. So I have to be careful when I'm giving advice to people that, that they're also in my very small uber privileged group. Um, because otherwise I could be giving, you know, catastrophic advice. I appreciate that, that. Um, I for the nuances of it because there's there's nothing that irks me more nowadays than anyone than somebody making a blanket blanket statement about dropping out of high school dropping out of college as some sort of magical bullet that will will solve your problems or or turn you into this sort of highly self motivated entrepreneur type because uh, you know there, there's so much selection bias going on here there there's so much. Uh, 
confirmation, excuse me, causation and, and correlation that's getting mixed up here and, and a lot of lack of discussion about the background that you're coming from, the, the, the family that you're coming from, the, the school or other educational experiences that you had um, growing up that to, to simplify it into like drop out of school, it's just, it's, it's really irresponsible to promote that meme, but there are people who do it because that, that, uh, that makes a good headline, right? Yes. That, definitely. That's a sticky idea. Uh, so when you have these discussions with other people, young people who are thinking about dropping out of college, um, how do you change your, your tune when they're not in the tech uh, related fields, when they are in a liberal arts field, but they're feeling like college isn't doing it for them? Um, how would you talk to somebody who's a, a French major who says, <laughs> I'm thinking about dropping out of college? I guess I would give them my dad's line. So what do you want to do? Like what, get some options on the table. Like what are you actually going to do when you leave? Do you have a trip plan? Do you have a company you want to work at? Is there something you want to learn? Is there something you want to do? People you want to meet? Um, like get that actual, that actual option on the table because then it becomes easy to make the opportunity cost calculation because if it's just like, you know, magical anything, then like that's kind of like infinity of, of value versus all of the costs of school. But if you have like an actual option on the table, then you could, take that option and subtract school and see if it's positive or negative. And so that's, that's where I try and get people to go. Are there any parts of the college experience that you, you feel like you missed out on? Mm. Yeah, definitely. I college is a bundle and what's great about bundles is they're like, they're, you know, there are wonderful things that you, that they get that you don't even need knew you wanted until they give them to you. They kind of just give you the whole package. Um, and so there, yeah, there are a bunch of things that I think I missed out on in that bundle. Um, I think nothing so big that I didn't realize it and then go get it myself. Um, like if I wanted to meet more friends, I would, I would just go and look for more friends. Um, but I think there are some things I missed out on in terms of like building deeper friendships with, with college friends, spending four years building friendships that, that seemed like something I missed out on. Um, I, I think so. I, I stayed at Penn for basically a year, year and a half, really. So I met a bunch of kids, but mostly kids at my year or older. I didn't meet any of the kids below me. So I, I really missed out on three years of kids below me that, that were going to Penn. So it, it felt like my network and my friends could be a lot broader and, and deeper if I stayed at school. Um, but but on, but just on the other hand, to, to keep it fair, I. Um, I got to learn not being in school how to make friends, which is very different from, make, from making friends in a school context, which you have to learn eventually if you leave school, which, which everyone does. Or, well, not everyone, but most people do. <laughs> Aside from those who stay in academia forever, we all need yeah. to learn how to make our, our own social connections. Yeah, so, so I learned how to do it eventually. And I, I have a social life and social friends that I, that I love. So I'm not really complaining, but it feels like I would have more friends and maybe deeper connections if I stayed. All right, last big question for you. If you did this whole process over again, would you do it any differently? Would you have, have waited longer? Would you have waited less? Would you have pursued a different opportunity? Um, mm. Go into the Krauss time machine. Yeah, so I, I guess like the trite answer is I like where I'm at now, so I wouldn't do anything differently because I like where I'm at now. I think, I guess if I could really go back in time, what I would do is probably just unschool me from day one um, because, or, or, or wouldn't, yeah, not have me in the school system from day one. 
Um, I, I guess part of the problem, the reason I say that is, although school was great for me and I was good at it and, and it opened a lot of doors for me, it took me a lot of years and I, to outlearn a lot of the bad lessons schools teach you. And I haven't outlearned them all. It, they're like a lot of them are very ingrained. Um, and, and they come from me being going to this hyper competitive school and being very hyper competitive at the school. I found my, found myself even just a year or two ago wondering how smart people that I met were. Like I want to know their SAT scores. I want to know how they did on, on tests in mm-hmm. high school. Ranking I want to everyone. I want to rank everyone. I want to know if my ranking was above or below theirs. And if it was above, like I would treat them, you know, a certain way. And if they were, and they were above me, I would treat them a certain way. Like I wanted to know where I stood. Cause in high school and in school in general, you always know where you stand in relation to everyone else. And I really took those numbers as defining characteristics of who I was. I felt like defined by those numbers. So like, this is kind of a crazy story, but I had this metaphor in my head. It wasn't a metaphor. Like I honestly believed, um, so there's, this is kind of a long story, but um, it's, it's interesting. So when I was a kid, I saw this Jimmy Neutron movie of these aliens who came and, and, and stole all the adults. And basically what, it got me thinking. And I was wondering that if aliens came to humanity and they only could take like one or two people, they would only take the special people, of course. And so I, I, wanted, I wanted to make sure that I was like included in this alien adventure. And so I was wondering like <laughs> from, from outer space how would they know that I was a special person? Like, what would they know about my life looking down on everyone's life in my life that I was worth, worth like involving in this, in this, uh, drama. And so all I could think of was great. Like that's the only, only thing I do as a kid all day. That I'm, the only thing I'm responsible for is great. Everything else in my life is taken care of. So I might as well, this is around eighth grade when I started doing well in computer science and in school. I was like, if that's the only thing I'm responsible for, I should just do it really, really well. Like I should, that should be my entire life. And that should be the mark of me, the measure of me. Um, and so I've been spending a lot of time unlearning that and unlearning a, a few of those lessons that school teaches. And so if I could do it all over again, I, I would, I would wish that I, I didn't have to unlearn all those elitist ranking lessons that I find myself having to re- unlearn. So it sounds like you appreciated many aspects of your private K through 12 experience, but also it left you with some, some longstanding psychological baggage. baggage. <laughs> yes. Yes. I know, but you're right. I, I really did love, I love school. Um, I enjoyed it at the time and I, and it was good for me in a lot of ways. Uh, but, but definitely there are parts of it that I wish I didn't, I didn't have. I think there, there might've been freer schools or less structured schools or less competitive schools that would have been better for my, social development. All right. Very last question for you, Steve, uh, through other com- conversations that we've had, I know that you've been doing a lot of reading recently in the, the alternative education space, because now as a, essentially a teacher and organizer of, of youth groups, you are in this position of figuring out, you know, what kind of uh, position do I put myself in? How do I interact with my students? How do I teach? And so I know you've been thinking a lot about pedagogy, uh, you've been thinking a lot about um, how to treat young people. What What are some of the most interesting books or articles or or theories or research that you've come across? Just top of your head. Mm. Well, your books are wonderful, of course. Yeah, I Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, top books. I so Mindstorms by Seymour Papert was really influential on me because th- that's the book that was the basis of the philosophy of the computer science courses that I took when I was a kid. So there's this, this guy out of MIT who invented the, lo- the logo programming language and this whole pedagogical philosophy. And he puts in this book and a few of his other books, but 
but mind storms is the first one. So you really have to read that, especially if you, anyone who wants to teach kids or shape how, how children think should read mind storms, especially if they want to think about it in the context of technology, which is what I'm doing. So mind storms is very influential for me. Um, and then recently I've been handing out, so I've been, I, I hand out copies of that to people because I think it's very impactful. And then recently I started handing out copies of free at last by Daniel Greenberg of the Sudbury Valley school, because I, I, I recommended it to a few people and then I heard back from those people that it really changed their perspective on education. Like my dad, my brother, a friend of mine who really wasn't, who, these people really weren't into the free school idea. They, they thought I was a crazy person. And then I handed them free at last. And it was like, oh, wow, there is some magic here. So those two books would be the ones I'd recommend um, for, for starters. Free at last was also a giant influence on me when, back in college when I was getting into all this stuff. So I, I second that. Yeah, I guess. And then uh, you, you're a big fan of Gatto. And so I'd recommend him. But really only if you're looking to be very angry at the world. I know. Just angry in general. Uh, John Gatto does not offer many practical solutions <laughs> in a satisfying way. Uh, I, I remember reading his entire underground history of American education. Mm. And only in the last chapter, literally the last chapter, did he offer about a thousand words of prescriptive advice about how to change the school system. And a lot of it he, he acknowledges is not even feasible or practical. Uh, and, and so it's, it's tough. Uh, yeah, it's, it's tough to get the, the inspiring practical bits out of these, these books that are, that are right on with their critique. Uh, that's, that's, I think why the Sudbury Valley school books are so good because it's an actual existing school that's still operating right now. Yes, definitely. Steve, it's been a big pleasure. Thanks for sharing your story with me. Thanks so much for having me on. If you enjoyed this ad free podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can write a review on iTunes. You can share it on social media. You can print out off-trail learning onto little slips of paper, hundreds of thousands of them, and rent a plane and fly around your local area dropping leaflets on to everyone, creating a giant mess. But we'll probably get some leads from that. You can email this to someone who might benefit from it, or you can support it directly at offtraillearning.com slash support.